congratulations. Let me be the first to congratulate you on doing one of the most difficult, hardest things known to mankind, and that is waiting. This is a major achievement for many of us because, let's be honest, we do not like waiting. Superficially, this is why we hate traffic, love Chick-fil-A's drive-thru efficiency, and tend to go to the 15 items or less checkout line, even though we have a cart overflowing with groceries, you know who you are. We do not like waiting. But in the Bible, waiting is a sign of faith. It's hard, but good. It's not efficient, but it's effective. It doesn't feel good, but it's glorious. And today, as we begin this Advent season, we, we enter into a story, a story found in Isaiah chapter 7 with a man named Ahaz who was, who was asked to wait, not on a preacher to begin his sermon, but on God. And as we dive into this story, we will discover a three-part answer to this overarching question, which is this. What does it mean to wait on God? What does it mean? So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. And let's begin by looking at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Long before Isaiah chapter 7, of course, God's people were split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. At the same exact time, there was an evil empire known as Assyria, an empire known by historians as, quote, one of the most bloodthirsty and cruel nations in the history of the entire world. Pretty staggering claim. And it's this evil empire that has its eyes set on Israel, Judah, and neighboring Syria. So what do they do? Well, the nation of Israel and Syria decide to join forces, and, and they ask Judah, they say, hey, listen, we want to take down these guys once and for all. Will you help us? But, but King Ahaz, king of Judah, he had, he had heard the stories of the Assyrians, and he wasn't too thrilled at that idea. Because the Assyrians were known for taking down entire nations. In fact, historians record that typically when they go into a nation, they would cut off the heads of all their enemies and then toss the heads at the entrance of the city gate for all to see. These were brutal people. So when Ahaz is presented with the opportunity to partner with Israel and Syria to take on these guys, he thinks, I want no piece of that. So what happens? Look at verse 2. It says, the house of David was told, Syria is in league or partnership with Israel. Syria and Israel decide that if Judah isn't with us, they are against us. So here they are, the armies of Syria and Israel marching towards the nation of Judah with one mission, to conquer the nation 
and kill the king. So what happens when King Ahaz gets this news that these armies are coming for him? Look at verse two. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Translation, he's scared out of his mind. Why? Because these two massive armies are heading his way and they won't stop until he is dead. Verse three. So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. You and Shahir Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, here's what I want you to say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because, verse five, Syria with Ephraim, another way to say Israel, and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up for the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. But what does God say, verse seven? Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Can, can, you, can you just step back for a moment and picture what's happening here? Ahaz is scared out of his mind. He's pacing around wondering how he's going to survive an attack from Syria and Israel. It's two massive armies. And in the midst of all this, God sends Isaiah with a message. What was the message? Well, Verse four, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Why? Verse seven, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Which brings us to the first answer to this overarching question. What does it mean to wait on God? Here's what it means. First, it means trusting when I can't see him working. What does it mean to wait on God? It means trusting when I can't see him working. In the midst of Ahaz's shock, fear, and worry, God comes to him and simply says, trust me. From our perspective, this is pretty easy, isn't it? Ahaz is being attacked, has no help. God promises to help him. Ahaz should wait, trust God, end of the story. Pretty easy, right? But, but, but let's put our feet into the shoes of Ahaz for a moment. Because from his perspective, the armies are still marching. His fear is still growing. All the while, there appears to be no sign of God anywhere. I wonder, can you relate? Do you, do you find yourself listening to this message in the midst of a circumstance where it feels as though God is absent? Sure, you know, you know God never sleeps or slumbers, but if you're honest, it feels like he's taking a really long nap. And now, after each day passes, Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And as each day hope wanes, 
Maybe you come to this place today or you watch online and you're thinking, does God even care? One of Satan's oldest and most cunning tricks is to get in the ear of Christians who don't see God around them and whisper, God's not trustworthy. So maybe you, maybe you come to church today barely holding on, wondering in the back of your mind like King Ahaz, can I really trust him? Can I really trust him? And if that's you, there's really good news. That the Bible actually gives us more reasons to trust God than to doubt him. So, so I could give a list of 100, 200, 1,000, 10,000 reasons that we should trust God. But real fast, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot these three down. Three reasons we can trust God today, right now. Three reasons we can trust God today. First is this, he's faithful. He's faithful. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, but the Lord is, say it, faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are unfaithful, he remains, what? Faithful. For he cannot deny who he is. Listen, we, we can trust God because he never acts out of line with his character. If you need a reason to thank God today, let it start with that. He is always loving, always gracious, always wise. Listen, God doesn't have mood swings. You should be thankful for that. He, he, it's not like he, God gets up one day, he's like, you know, I'm feeling good, I've got your back. The next day, sleep strong, has a crook at his neck, and he's like, you know what, you're annoying me, leave me alone. No, 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 he's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, he's faithful. So three reasons we can trust God. First, he's faithful. Secondly, he's wise. He's wise. Psalm 104, verse 24. Oh, Lord, what a variety of things you have made in wisdom. You have made them all. Isaiah 40, verse 28. I love this verse. It says, have you never heard, have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his wisdom. Think about, think about this for a moment. God has never made a mistake. Have you ever thought about that? That's amazing. God has never blown it. He's never done something and then a day, month, year later thought, you know, I should have not done that. No, no, no. Why? Because he is wise and always knows exactly what to do. We should trust him. So three reasons we can trust God. First, he's faithful. Secondly, he's wise. Third, he's good. He's good. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. God is the definition of goodness. Listen, if you, if you spend enough time with me, you'll find some good. 
You'll also find a fair bit of pride, selfishness, stubbornness, and foolishness. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. But listen, there is, try to wrap your mind around this. There is nothing in God that is not good. Like the closer you get to him, the more you know him, the more goodness you find. It's incredible. So, so what, is, what does this all mean? It means that because he is faithful, wise, good, and a whole host of other things, we can trust him. I have a toddler at home, and wow, somebody should have told me that was like a full-time job. That's a lot of work. I have a toddler at home, and whenever, this happened last night, when I can't see him for 10 seconds, I'm like, ah! Because if I can't see him, chances are he's up to no good. God is the opposite. When we're waiting on him and we can't see him working, we can always trust that he is always up to something good. Or in the words of Charles Spurgeon, when I cannot trace his hand, I can trust his heart. We can trust him even when we can't see him working. So back to the story. What's, what's happening? Well, there's two opposing armies. They're marching towards Judah, ready to take down King Ahaz, and God promises that he'll deliver him. All Ahaz has to do is wait. But evidently, Ahaz had other plans, and waiting for God was not one of them. So Isaiah says to him in verse 9, incredible statement, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So play on words in the Hebrew language, it simply means this, Ahaz's faith in God's plan is shaky at best. After all, in a matter of days, two powerful armies will be knocking on his door, calling for his head, and it doesn't appear that God is doing anything. So, what does God do? Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, God says, listen, Ahaz, let's play a little game of truth or dare. I dare you to trust me. In, in fact, I can tell your faith's a little fickle right now. Here's what we're going to do. Ask me for a sign. Ask me to prove it. I'll give you any sign you want. You make the terms. And I'll do it because I want to show you I do exactly what I say. You name it. That's amazing. <laughs> Think about this. Ahaz is being asked by the God who created the universe Hey, ask me for a sign, anything you want, anything miraculous, I'll do it just to show you you can trust me. That's incredible. Why? Because Ahaz could have asked for anything, anything miraculous. Think of the endless options. A burning bush, turning water into wine, dissolving a mountain, having Brad Merchant do 10 push-ups. You name it, you name it, anything miraculous. So what does he say? Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord 
to the test. On the surface, it appears that Ahaz is really humble. After all, doesn't the Bible say in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, do not put the Lord your God to the test? Isn't he just obeying the Bible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back up a little bit. One difference. Ahaz isn't putting God to the test. God is putting God to the test. And he makes the rules. So when Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign, he's not exhibiting humility, but pride. Why? Think commentator Ray Ortland sums this up best when he writes the following. God hands him a blank check, but Ahaz refuses to cash it. He doesn't want to trust God. Sure, he puts it in pious language, but it's all quick-thinking, diplomatic hypocrisy. He knows there are strings attached, and if he lets God in, God will take control. Simply put, Ahaz knows it is risky for him to surrender to God's plan. That's risky. After all, he doesn't know the what, the when, the how of God's promise to deliver him. So what does he do? Well, it's tragic, really. We learn later in verse 20 in subsequent chapters that Ahaz tragically calls up Assyria and says, hey, Israel and Syria is coming at me. Can you partner with us? Help me, help, help me take down these guys. And they do, but they also take down Judah and they ultimately conquer Ahaz. It doesn't go well. Which brings us to the second answer to this question. What does it mean to wait on God first? It means trusting when I can't see him working. And secondly, it means surrendering when I don't know his plan. Surrendering when I don't know his plan. Jesus, take the wheel. Not gonna sing, don't worry, don't worry. It's an easy song to sing. Hard truth to live. The fact of the matter is, we like being in control, don't we? Because when we're in control, when we are the chairman of the board of our lives, we like to come up with a strategic plan, maneuver around obstacles or potential failures, and we like to feel like we're in charge. See, the temptation that Ahaz fell into and the temptation that we are all tempted to fall into is believing the lie that states the following. My plan is best. My plan is best. Ahaz believed this and, and soon he'll learn a lesson that we all have to learn at some point and it's this. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. It is far better, far, far better to surrender to the God who, as Ephesians chapter one, verse 11 tells us, works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's a much better plan. Even, even when we don't know the what, when, how of that plan. Still much better to surrender to him. Then, for us to decide, yeah, that's a little risky. I trust myself a little bit more. 
I'm taking matters into my own hands. Just so you know, that never goes well. In fact, I was thinking about this this week. You know, one of the greatest mercies in our lives is God sometimes not giving us what we think we want. I want this so bad, I want this so bad, I want this so bad. And and what Tim Keller says, he says, you know, what is is prayer? He's like, well, you know, in those situations, you would only ask for what God would give you if you knew everything that he knows. In other words, it's from our finite view, we think this is is awesome, I really really need this. And, And God up in the heavens in his wisdom and love says, no, no, no you don't know what you're asking for. It's a mercy. So maybe you find yourself in a circumstance today that you did not have down in your life plan portfolio. If that's you, I want to encourage you, today is a fresh opportunity to surrender. To simply say to the Lord, this is really hard. I wouldn't have drawn this up myself, but I'm gonna trust you. Listen, every day is a new opportunity and calling to place fresh trust in God. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, relying on God has to begin all over again, every day, as if nothing had yet been done. If you're out of hope today, today's a great day to start hoping again. You can surrender to the God who knows all, who's good, who's wise, and trust him. Maybe the reason God brought you to church today is to simply be reminded to surrender to him even when you don't know his plan. Ahaz could have done this. He's given plenty of opportunities, but instead, what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands and refuses to trust the Lord. So what does Isaiah say in response? Look at verse 13. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? What does this mean? Well, Ahaz had been so hesitant, evidently, in leading the people of Judah and is now so hesitant to wait on God that Isaiah essentially says, listen, you frustrated the people around you and now you're ticking off God. After all, what, what more could Ahaz could have asked for? I mean, what did God not give him? He gave him promise after promise and now when given the opportunity to ask God for a sign, just to be sure, he refuses it and calls on Assyria. And what's going to happen as a result? Look at verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, Judah will experience more destruction than they have ever before. Here's the tragedy in the story. Here's the tragedy. It... It wasn't that Ahaz didn't need God's deliverance. It's that he didn't want it. 
that's the tragedy. Instead of waiting on God and trusting in his promises, Ahaz rejects him and inevitably is destroyed. Sad ending to the story, isn't it? But it's not quite over because even in spite of Ahaz's unbelief and pride, look what God gives one more promise. He says, I'm gonna give one more promise. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, God's like, listen, you didn't ask for a sign, give you an opportunity, I'm gonna give you one instead. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The point here is clear. God is giving the nation of Judah and all who would come after, including you and me, a sign that God will deliver his people. But his deliverance won't come on the back of an army, but through the life of a child. Which brings us to the third answer to this question. What does it mean to wait on God? It means trusting when I can't see him working. It means surrendering when I don't know his plan. And maybe most of all, it means this, believing he keeps his promises. It is said that there are around 3,000 promises in the entire Bible. And perhaps the greatest promise of them all is Isaiah Chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does this mean? Well, fast forward in history to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Where an angel, you guys know the story, right? Where an angel comes to Joseph and says this in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, we, for he rather will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. Here's kind of the commentary on what was just said by this angel. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. What does he do? Verse 23. He quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. What we were just reading. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What, is, what does this mean? Well, see, whereas Ahaz needed deliverance from Syria and Israel, we are in need of deliverance from sin and death. And the way of deliverance is not through might, but mercy. And friends, we are all in need of mercy. Why? Because let's be honest, looking at Isaiah 7, walking through the story, looking at Ahaz is kind of like looking in a mirror. Left to ourselves, we don't trust God's heart. We live according to our own wisdom, our own plans. And when given grace from God, we turn the other way. Brothers and sisters, we don't need deliverance from something outside of us. We need deliverance from sin within us. 
Since the fall of Genesis chapter three, all of creation has been groaning with this question. Who will deliver us from sin? Answer, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. God's promise to send one who will be the ultimate deliverer for his people is a promise that is the climax of all other promises. In other words, every promise before Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and every single promise after is, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So how does this relate to waiting on God? Because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can believe with 100% confidence God keeps his promises. That's really good news. And that really matters for two types of people here today. First, it really matters for those who aren't waiting on God. Maybe you're listening to this sermon and for the first time ever you've realized, I don't wait on God because I don't know him. My friend, if that's you, it is by no accident you're here or watching this online. No accident. God sent Jesus to die in your place and deliver you from the tyranny of sin and death. And for you, the first step in believing God keeps his promises is believing by placing your faith in Jesus for the first time. Here's the simple truth. It's true of all of us. We have a lot of sin. God has much, much, much more mercy. So go to him. Trust him. His arms are open wide. God keeps his promises. This really matters for those who aren't waiting on God, but maybe for a vast majority that are here today, it really matters for those who are waiting on God. If you're listening to this sermon and, and maybe you've, you're, you've not been aware that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are waiting on God, whether you know it or not. Why? Because we live in between the reality of the already and the not yet, and we're smack dab in the middle. Jesus has already come. He has delivered us from the penalty of our sin, but he has not yet delivered us from the presence of sin in us or in the world. Which means we simultaneously, this is the Christian life right here, I'm going to sum it up for you. We simultaneously have hope and yet still live in a world marred by sin, overflowing with reasons to despair. Cancer, natural disasters, death of loved ones, headaches, Family conflict, leafless trees, and COVID-19 are all signposts constantly reminding us that everything is broken. Everything. If sin were the color blue, everything would have a tint of blue to it. Everything. 
But we don't need to look outside of us to see this is true, do we? Like, you don't have to do that. You know what you have to do? You know what I have to do? Look inside here. We see our selfishness, our pride, our dusty Bibles, our prayerless lives, and so many sins that we still commit even though we've been Christians for years and we thought we would have got over that 10 years ago. Some of us, in fact, I'd rather say most of us didn't skip into church today, we crawled in. Because we, we, we look outside in the world and we grow discouraged, that's one thing. But then all week long, we've been looking at ourselves and our sin and our shortcomings and we're in despair. Because guys, we are a mess. I get sick of me sometimes, don't you? Not me, but you. Both are probably true. So what do we do? What do we do? Martin Luther, <clears throat> I love Luther. Once, in fact, I've been reading this book. It's a bunch of letters that he wrote to different guys. And there's one letter he wrote to this guy who kept writing about his anxiety. And he said, he's, <laughs> Luther got sick of the guy. He's like, stop writing me. It's like the guy kept, it was like old, old version of texting. And he's like, I can't block his number because he knows my address. So the guy kept sending him the letter. And Luther said at the beginning of the letter, he said, Dear friend, I need your letter like the ocean needs another cup of water. <laughs> love that. Not very pastoral gentle, but I love that. But Luther got another letter, and the letter was from a guy who was exactly what I'm describing. In fact, he's like you and me. And he was despairing because he kept looking at his own heart, seeing all of his sin, and he just thought, I'm a mess. And how can God love someone like me? Luther wrote him back, said, you know, I want to encourage you, trust God's promises, look to Christ. And then at the end of the letter, he started saying, you know what, I relate with that. Luther did. Spearhead of the Reformation. He's like, I get it. And then he ended the letter with this line. I love this. He said, dear friend, when I look at myself, I don't see how it can be saved. Isn't that true? But then here's why we come to church. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. So what does it mean to wait on God? It means trusting him when I can't see him working. It means surrendering to him when I don't know his plan. And most of all, it means believing he keeps his promises. So you know what we're gonna do until Jesus comes back? We're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus until we see him face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we need this word. I need this word. It's hard to wait. And we need grace. And I know I have brothers and sisters here who are really in the midst of hard seasons. And I just pray you would help something from this message to be a help. Thank you, Jesus, that when we look at ourselves, we wonder, how could I ever be saved? But when we look at you in all of your beauty, all of your splendor, all of your glory, we think, how could I be lost? 
And that's such an encouragement. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.